in this fall, we are going through the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient poem that is typically said together. So, if you would, Danny will lead us in the Apostles' Creed. It'll be on the screen. Okay, feel free to say this with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the global church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Danny. We normally have somebody come up and do the scripture reading, but through this sermon series, we're sticking with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, well, welcome. My name is Cassie Farron. If we haven't met my husband, Alex, and I, who is just up here, we pastor Midtown Church together, and we're so glad to have you here with us. You know, Alex was really knocking on people that still use checks and cash. Yeah, no, I really like checks, so boo on you. Anyway, I just had to get that off my chest. Uh, I'm so glad to be back with you. If you don't know, Alex and I took a little bit of a break, so this is probably my first time preaching in the pulpit in like a month and a half, which is awesome here at Midtown. So super grateful to be back here with you guys. Uh, we've had some incredible communicators from our church kind of filling in as we take a time of rest. Uh, but really excited to jump into the Apostles' Creed, our sermon series today. Um, you know, we just said that Apostles' Creed together. And if you don't know, the Apostles' Creed is a very ancient prayer. It's a prayer that dates all the way back to the fourth century of our Christian faith. And we recite the Apostles' Creed over again as a church, not because we want to brainwash you or we're some kind of cult. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, what did I walk into today? Uh, that's not the desire at all, right? We don't desire to be a cult or to brainwash you by repeating something over and over, but rather do that because it is a reflection of the full breadth of the story of Scripture, it covers Genesis to Revelation in a really succinct summary type of way. And it also reminds us that we have a Christian faith that our story as individuals is rooted in something very ancient. That this faith has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries. And the people of God have actually been praying this prayer for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I don't know about you, but there's something really comforting in knowing that I have said the very thing that those that came before me have said over and over again. We also say the Apostles' Creed because it's kind of like our Pledge of Allegiance. Anybody in elementary school have to say the Pledge of Allegiance in their class? Yes, right? You will remember it forever, right? You're pledging allegiance to a country that you live in. And similarly with the Apostles' Creed, we repeat this over and over again because it's almost like we're 
giving allegiance, pledging allegiance to a different king or a different ruler. And that ruler being the one true God, right? Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we pledge allegiance to this God to remember that we belong and live in a different kingdom. When we choose to follow Jesus, we actually choose to live by a new set of rules, a new way of acting, a new way of living. And so in saying this over and over again, we're reminded of that new life that Jesus has invited us into. And that's why to us, the Apostles' Creed is so important and why we're spending this whole fall going through it line by line. Last week, Alex uh, started with that first line, I believe in God. And so today, uh, we are going to focus on that second line, the Father Almighty, the Father Almighty. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, I don't at times have as many doubts about God's existence or have some like existential crisis. I'm not as, um, I don't know, intellectual (laughs) as maybe my husband is. My husband will sit in like a dark room and be like, I'm contemplating all of life right now. And I'm like, "Mm, okay. Uh, I'm definitely more of a feeling person. And so for me, I don't nearly doubt uh, God's existence as much as I doubt on a daily basis, whether he's knowable, whether he's intimate, whether he's personal, whether he's a friend, whether he cares, and whether he is truly my father, right? You know, just a few months ago, I sat across from a table of a good friend of mine, and she was just explaining to me about how she was having to uh, suspend her beliefs of what a father should look like. Her father uh, hadn't taken much of an interest in her daily life, her goings and comings. Uh, Her father didn't really seem to be interested in what was going on in her life or willing to have meaningful conversations with her. And moments where he was, uh, they didn't end very well. And as we're sitting across the table from one another, she's just expressing, you know, I'm having to change my understanding or the role that my father fills. Like, my father just can't be the father that I want him to be. And as she was talking, it kind of reminded me of my own dad's story. I'm really thankful that I grew up in a house in which I had a father who was wonderful and loving and kind and compassionate and caring, supported me and loved me. But that was not the story of my dad. In fact, he joked frequently growing up that I was the guinea pig because he never had any good examples for what a father would look like. Uh, My grandfather passed away in 2016, and although he was a charming man in his own right, he was a really hard man. He's just difficult. Uh, It's really hard to have conversations with him about anything that mattered. Uh, He's really angry. His temper would flip at the flip of a coin. Uh, You never really know what was going to come out of his mouth next. And so very much my dad described the fact that his older brother, for the most part, raised him, was like a father to him. My dad didn't have a great example of what a father looked like. Just a few weeks ago, Alex and I were headed out to run some errands, and we got a text from a friend of ours of a picture of him and his biological dad, and it was the first time that he had met his biological dad in his entire life, his 20-plus years of living. And in a really weird twist of events, as much as his dad wanted, initially seemed to want to meet him at first, it didn't really seem like he wanted to know a whole lot about him. He really cared a whole lot about like what his interests were or what he liked or what he disliked. And so I don't know about you, but that term father can just be kind of difficult, just kind of weird in our 21st century. 
hard, right? We have these unmet expectations of what a father is supposed to look like. Maybe we've uh, had some abuses or some pains that we felt from our earthly father. Maybe we just have a really complicated history uh, or understanding of our history with patriarchy, right, in our culture. That's just difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So for us, when we say the word father in faith, it can be like, oh, I just don't know if I like that very much, right? It's just kind of a hard word. Interestingly enough, though, the concept of father was something that the disciples, the first century audience of Jesus, would have also really struggled with. So we're going to get into that a little bit today. Uh, We're actually going to start, we're going to cover three different passages. We're going to start in Luke chapter 11, which is the Lord's Prayer. So if you want to, you know, that handy-dandy phone and QR code that Alex was talking about earlier, you can scan the back of your seat. There'll also be the scriptures on the screen. Pull up in your Bible app. We've got some Bibles in the back, too, or if you bought a physical one. Uh, Go ahead and turn with me to Luke 11. Uh, Before I kind of jump into Luke 11, I want to just take a little bit of a moment to talk about this word father and kind of define it. Because automatically, in our 21st century context, we hear the word father and we think the male gender, right? That's what we think the word association. And interestingly enough, uh, those that were writing the Apostles' Creed in the fourth century and many early Christians actually really struggled with this word association like we did. This connotation of the male gender with the term father. Uh, It was actually the very thing that our religion was like distinguished or different than the other religions of their day. See, in the fourth century, you would have had a lot of Roman and pagan gods that all had different genders. And the thing that set Christianity apart was the fact that they had one true God that actually transcended gender. So the early Christians did a whole lot to actually keep people from associating the word father with male. In fact, I found this quote, it was in a, a book on the Apostles' Creed. I'll quote Ben Myers a little bit later, but he actually um, found a sermon that was preached by an early Christian father by the name of Gregory of Nanzanius. That's a fun one to say. Uh, In the fourth century, and he had this sermon that he gave in the fourth century in Constantinople, and here's a quote from that sermon. He says, do you take it that our God is a male because of the masculine nouns God and Father? Is the Godhead a female because the Greek word is feminine? Such crude biological thinking would be pagan, not Christian. (laughs) I just love that. Can you imagine walking up to someone that's like, yes, God is the father. He's the head of the household. God's like the man and being like, okay, pagan. (laughs) I got you. Okay, pagan. I just love that he goes there. He says that's pagan, not Christian. The early Christians actually did a whole lot to divorce the idea of gender from the term father. They did a whole lot to do that. In fact, they actually compared many of the times God to a breastfeeding mother. This idea that God was not simply like this lord or ruler over loyal subjects, but rather someone that takes, you take nourishment from, just like a child takes nourishment from another. So I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to ask you to do something for me today. I want you to take that idea of father and suspend gender from it. I want you to think of father as a parental relationship, parent and child. Now, this is going to be very, very hard, I know, but just do your best with me as you journey through these scriptures to think of God as my parent, okay? So moving into the Lord's Prayer, Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, we actually see the disciples uh, look at Jesus as he's praying and say, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And you know, uh, this is actually kind of a crazy thing to say because many of the disciples, um, they all grew up in a Jewish culture in which they were frequently at the temple. They saw Jewish leaders literally praying all the time. Like of all the people to know how to pray, they should have known how to pray. And there was something so compelling about the way that Jesus prayed that they looked at Jesus and they said, teach us to pray. There's something that you're doing that's just so different. And would you know Jesus's first words as he begins to teach them to pray, as he gives them a prayer to pray, is our Father. Our Father. This prayer has become known as the Lord's Prayer in our society, and it's probably one of the most memorized, well-known prayers out of any in America or even just the Western world. And as annoyed as we might be about the way that that prayer starts, our Father, for many of us, when we hear that, we just kind of like yawn, right? Because we're used to it. We've memorized it. That's what we've always known. That's what we said in Sunday school. That's what we read on a postcard or a get well card or a sad card or whatever, right? Our Father. Some of us kind of get annoyed because we're like, oh, man, patriarchy striking again. Our Father. Okay. We just kind of roll our eyes, right? But for first century disciples, okay, this wouldn't just merely be like a yawn or an eye roll, okay? Their mouths would have like dropped to the floor. Not only would they have been like shocked that, God, that Jesus called God Father, but they actually probably would have been pretty outraged. Like, how dare you say that? It would have been like taking the Lord's name in vain. How dare you call God our Father? See, in the Jewish culture, God was never referred to in an intimate way. He was always referred to in a reverent way, one with lots of respect and distance. And the beginnings, the origins of this can actually be attributed all the way back to Genesis and then can be seen throughout the rest of the arc of Scripture. So why was God so distant for these disciples? Why was he so far away? Why was he not personal to them? Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I told you we'd be going to a few places today. Started in Luke. We're moving to Genesis chapter 3. We'll come back to Luke here in a second. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Before I kind of get into this, some of you may be wondering, man, you guys reference Genesis a lot in your sermons. Yes, we do. Uh, that's actually intentional. Uh, and there are a few reasons why we do that. The first is that Genesis, the Genesis account itself depicts the original sin of humanity, like the first place where we kind of messed up, where we believed a lie instead of the truth and then acted on it. It's the first time where we willingly break our relationship with creator, okay? Second reason is the Bible uh, is actually one big unified story from beginning to end. It has like a main idea. Did you know that the Bible has a main idea? I think some people kind of look at scripture and yes, there's differences in books and all of those things and it's good to know that, but the Bible is actually one unified story that has one big idea, and that big idea is that God created this incredible creation, appointed humanity as his partners to oversee it. Then humanity broke that partnership with God. And then God, ever since then, has been working to restore us through Jesus, has been working to restore that relationship. And so oftentimes when we're looking at how Jesus is restoring our relationship with God, we have to look at how we first broke it. Look, we have to look at why that relationship was broken to begin with. And that's why we're going to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. 
It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Prior to this point in the Genesis account, um, we actually see that God created the world, that he appointed humans to rule over it. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, we see that we had full dominion over the earth, that God had actually appointed us to be his partners in ruling the earth, and that we could do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, except for eating from one tree. Also, interestingly enough, we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God is referred to over and over and over again as Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim. And that translates from the Hebrew into Lord God. But interestingly enough, when this serpent comes onto the scene and begins twisting God's words, when he begins creating half-truths, right, he refers to God only by using the word Elohim, not Yahweh. He drops Yahweh. And scholars call this keeping the abstract but dropping the personal. It would be like if someone started calling you by your like, job title at work and not your actual name. So I teach public speaking at UMKC. Some of you guys know that. And it's, oh man, it's a blast. Freshman and public speaking, guys. So good. Anyway, I teach public speaking. And as you can imagine, freshmen are like very, very, very nervous as it is, let alone like having to take a freshman public speaking class their first semester of college. And so I always, first day of class, when they come in, I'm like, call me whatever you want. Like, hey, you, Cassie, Miss Farron, Mrs. Farron, Professor Farron, Professor Cassie, Teacher Cassie, I don't care. Just call me whatever feels most comfortable. And I do that because there's actually this concept in uh, like teaching that shows that if we can decrease the amount of distance that a student feels from a teacher, if we can increase the comfortability that they feel between us, that their actual grade will be higher. Isn't that crazy? So if they feel closer to me as a professor, they're going to get a better grade in the class. So it would be super, super weird if I walked into class mid-semester and I was like, y'all are not allowed to call me by my name anymore. You have to refer to me as professor or teacher. That's it. I never want you to ever utter the words Cassie or Miss Farron or anything like that again. Just call me professor. That's it. My students would like look at me and think, what did I do, right? Like, did we do something wrong? Does she not care about us anymore? Did we we do something that maybe made her frustrated at us? Does she really care about my grade or who I am as a person? Does she really care about who I am? And similarly, the serpent is doing exactly this to Eve. He removes God's personal comfortable, intimate name, and says this abstract, unknown being that you call God is a stingy, power-hungry dictator. He is no father. You cannot personally know him. You should not trust him. He does not have your best interests at heart. He is just Elohim. He is not Yahweh Elohim. And unfortunately, as many of you know, humanity actually chooses to believe this lie, and that relationship with God and humanity is ruptured. And we're still feeling the effects of this ruptured relationship today. That God that doesn't feel personal, that relationship that should exist between father and child or parent and child, but it's been broken. 
And unfortunately, we see this distance play out over and over and over again in the Old Testament, right? So we see, you know, God is a God that leads them out of Egypt. He's a God that would provide manna for them from heaven. He's mighty and powerful and controls the seas and the sky, but he's not really a God that I have a personal relationship. That's saved for only a few. Maybe Moses can talk to God, right? Maybe Abraham can hear what he may have to say, but no, 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 that's not for me. And this continues to prevail throughout the Jewish culture over and over and over and over again. A God that is very distant and not one that is personal. But then the good news is Jesus comes onto the scene. And he begins to confront these lies spoken by the enemy that humanity believed. He comes to restore this original name of God. And he says, God is not simply Elohim, no. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is present. He is intimate. And he is a knowable father. You can trust him. See, Jesus chooses to answer the disciples' question, teach us to pray with the words, our Father, because Jesus understood that to restore us and to restore the world, we had to restore our relationship with God. Because without an understanding of God as Father, we fail to understand our identity as the sons and daughters that have been forgiven through Jesus. We can't reconcile the fact that Jesus is God's son and therefore we have full inheritance. To be able to accept God as father is to be able to follow Jesus. So the disciples are thoroughly shocked, right? When they realize that God doesn't just exist, that he's not just out there, that he's not just powerful, that he can't just like just do some miracles here and there, but he actually is a father who cares. Jesus says, there is no longer a separation between Father and Almighty, but in me, those two things have been reunified. That's why today we can say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And as powerful as this is, I don't know about you, but despite Jesus's incredible words, his revelation, I have a hard time still believing and saying that phrase sometimes. I still find myself like Eve, doubting whether God is knowable, whether he's intimate, whether he's personal, whether he cares, whether he is a truly loving father. And I think we have a hard time rectifying this in our mind for a few reasons. I think, one, some of us have never been able to observe what a real father looks like, right? What a real good parent-child relationship looks like. And because we haven't, those false images kind of cloud our minds. We begin wondering, if my earthly father abandoned me, won't God? If my earthly mother abused me, won't God punish me? If a spiritual leader in my life turned out to be a fraud, does that mean God's a fraud? We have a hard time believing sometimes that God is Father because we've never had a good example of what that looks like. Second, I think some of us have these feelings, have a difficult time calling God Father because we have such a low view of ourselves. We find it hard to believe that we are lovable in spite of everything we've done. So we begin asking ourselves questions like, if I've committed so much wrong, 
If I have messed up over and over and over again, how could God possibly love me? Like, how could he really care? Like, isn't he mad at me? Find ourselves asking, like, am I really deserving of care after everything that I have done? And to address these two concerns, I want us to turn now to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Here we actually see an example of what a loving father, a loving parent looks like. And we also see a child who's actually really messed up. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Many of you know the story, tale of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. You know, as 21st century Western Westerners, you know, we hear that and we think like, oh, the father's just giving him his college fund. Like, he's just giving him his allowance, right? No, it's actually not what's happening here at all. It was much more offensive. Uh, first off, to actually uh, give somebody their property and for that person to sell it, Uh, would have been a major slap in the face. Uh, Property was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. It was like the thing you were proud of, the thing that you knew would be able to keep that next family going and the family after that and the family after that. So for him to sell the property, that son, would have just been like completely unforgivable to start. But to make matters worse, he asked the father to sell him this property before the father has died. And in Jewish culture, that was like very unheard of. In fact, to actually do that would be looking at the father and saying, I wish you were dead. The property is worth more than you are as a human being. See ya. And what I find so interesting about these first few lines is what the father does. Like I expect the father to retaliate to get really angry, right? In Jewish culture, it would have been acceptable for his father to beat him, for him to disown him. That would have been appropriate punishment. And the father does not do any of these things. He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't get angry with him. No, he just says, okay, here's the property. And here's where the real mystery of this father loves begins. Loves, love begins, tongue twister. We read on in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs had ate, but no one gave him anything. Side note, this was like a lowest of a low, not just because he wants to eat the food of pigs, but because he, this is a Jewish man, supposed to keep kosher. He's not supposed to touch a pig, let alone be in the same pen as them or eat the pods, the food of the pig. So this prodigal son, this youngest son, is this his lowest of lows. And then it says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he has an aha moment, a revelation, right? A wake-up call. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And so this younger brother, he arises and he goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's that low view of self there. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to celebrate. There's a lot of crazy things that happen in these verses. The first of which is that the father chooses to run to him. Father would have been having to sit there, like waiting, anticipating for this son who just wished he was dead to come back. Not only that, it was extremely undignified for senior figures to run in Jewish society. That was like something that the peasants did or the children did. There were not elitists who were considered runners. Like that's not something you did. So we see this senior figure picking up his robes and running towards the son who just wished he was dead a few verses ago, not knowing that he's coming to apologize. Like he doesn't know that his son is coming to apologize. He just knows that he's returned. And then it says in verse 20 that the father embraced him. And, you know, this can better be translated as, like, fell on his neck. You can think of, like, that biggest bear hug you've ever received where someone's dead weight just, like, collapses onto you. So the father runs towards him. He collapses onto his son. And at this point, the Jewish audience is like, this is totally insane. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. This is weird. And then Jesus takes it a whole step further. He says the father goes and gets the most expensive robes, the most expensive ring, which was probably a family heirloom passed down from generation to generation. How bizarre, right? That property that the father had just given him, that thing that was passed down from generation to generation that the son squandered, the father's doing it all over again. He says, here's the family heirloom. Here's my ring. Oh, and not only that, I'm going to give you shoes, which was a huge luxury in that time period. I'm going to cut the most expensive piece of meat, and we're going to cook it and celebrate. Even though you were hateful, untrustworthy, irresponsible, ungrateful, and unloving, just like a few verses ago, right? And I don't know about you, but I look at this story, especially as an older sibling, and I'm like, "Mm, strike. Like, no, That's not what the son deserves. Like this whole thing feels so backwards. Like where's the accountability? Where is the punishment? Where's the wisdom in giving this son who's proved not to be good with money, more money? This story feels backwards. This father's love feels really, really backwards. Today, we sang a song called Simple Kingdom, and it actually refers to God's kingdom or the way that we live as we follow Jesus as backwards. I'm going to read a few lines for it because I think it helps us as we kind of try to wrap our brains around what this backward love of a father looks like. It says, your kingdom is simple, as simple as love. You welcome the children. You stop for the one. 
We want to see people the way Jesus does. Your kingdom is simple. Lord, teach it to us. Your kingdom is backwards. It flows in reverse. What you call a treasure, this world calls a curse. The small become great and the last become first. Your kingdom is backwards. Lord, teach us to serve. You know, as I reflect on these verses, I begin to wonder if the almighty God is all-powerful because he chooses to be like the running father who loves his undeserved child. You know, our world tells us that power is derived from control, subjugation, distance, imposed force. And yet Jesus tells us, oh no, my God's power is backwards. God's power looks more like that breastfeeding mother than the lording ruler. God's power comes from his ability to love us with this illogical, unfounded, undeserved type of love. And the story of the prodigal son, or as most scholars like to call it, the running father or the forgiving father, reveals to us the true nature of our father God who continues to love us over and over and over and over again with this backwards kind of love. This love that flows in reverse that really just to us makes no sense. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. A little bit of a personal story. Back in July of last year, Alex and I were getting ready to officially uh, launch Midtown Church with our team. Uh, We are a pretty brand new church. We'll officially celebrate a year in September. And um, I know, it's exciting. Um, It is exciting. We'll officially celebrate a year in September. And so we had been meeting in microchurches. We had been meeting on a monthly basis. But we were gearing up to meet regularly every single Sunday and do the thing, right? Launch the church. And if you know anything, about starting a small business, you have an eye into what it's like to start a church. It's a very entrepreneurial endeavor. And so our list, our to-do list, was like a mile long. Alex and I like pride ourselves on trying not to be like anxious presence, but we were a little anxious. Like there was a lot going on. And so the last thing that I wanted to do was like leave for a whole week to go on a retreat. Uh, and we had some pastors and mentors in our life where we're like, hey, um, come with us to Oklahoma. They pastor a church in, in Tulsa. Come with us. We'll pay for a retreat for you. We want you to come out for, it was like four or five days. Uh, spend it with us and then go back to whatever you got. Okay. And I remember literally saying to, we said this to each other, Alex and I, we were like, we do not have time to go on this trip. Like this trip. We do not want to go. I don't have time to do it. Honestly, it would be so much wiser if we just stayed home. We're like, no, we're going to do it. We're going to go on this trip. And it's one of those experiences where you go thinking, ah, and you come back and you're like, that's the best thing I could have done for my time and for my soul. Uh, and so we go on this entreat, retreat. It's with a few other church planning couples, uh, friends of ours that we had been journeying with for about a year. And without warning, which I'm still like this much better about this, but without warning on the third day, uh, Pastor Matt and Lindsay bring us together. And they're like, okay, so we're going to talk about father wounds today. It's like, 
oh, okay, cool. Like, I know you all and I like you all, but I've only known you for like about a year. <laughs> We've been in person together for like only two, three days now. I don't know that I really want to talk about father wounds with you. Um, but here's the reason why. And these are words from Pastor Matt. The downfall of spiritual leaders is rooted in the wounds that you experience from your earthly and spiritual fathers and mothers. And being that you're choosing to spiritually lead others, you actually have to work through these wounds if you have any hope, any hope of leading people well or loving people well. And so slowly and very painfully, I might add, there were so many awkward moments, <laughs> so many painful moments. We each went around the room and we identified our father and mother wounds. And let me just say, I've never seen so many grown men cry in my entire life. It was like a total sob fest. But as painful as the experience was, it was the most freeing thing I think I've ever done in my pastoral ministry. See, in realizing the flaws and failures of our parental figures in our life, whether those are our literal biological parents or those that have acted as authority or parental figures in our world, we're actually forced to confront the effect that it's had on our souls. The way that we actually treat other people and ultimately the way that we view God. And so as we kind of wrap up a little bit today, here's how I want us to respond. Um, we always end our sermon, our teaching, with a spiritual practice, something that you can do throughout your week to actually enact what we've talked about. And this is going to be a big ask, uh, but I think it's one that's worth it. If you're like, I really want to love people well. I really want to have a good relationship with God. I want to be able to call him my father almighty. I think we actually have to take some space and time to say like, where have I been wounded? Like what things have I started to believe about myself because of the parental figures in my life? So I would encourage you either take some time and sit down with a journal or maybe you schedule a time with a close friend and you say like, I need to talk through some of my father wounds, my mother wounds, my spiritual figure wounds. I need to like get these out loud. I need to maybe even process through how these continue to affect me on a daily basis. Maybe that conversation or even that moment in your journal leads you to say like, I think I really need to start seeing a professional about this. I need to start working through how this has affected the way I view myself and others in my life. And then slowly but surely, and this won't happen overnight, I want you to begin replacing some of those horrible experiences, those ideas, with some truths about who the Father God Almighty truly is as revealed through the scriptures in Jesus Christ. This looks like writing down, my father has always been angry with me because I deserve it. But God, my almighty father, always responds to love, even responds to me in love, even when I am in the wrong. And every moment that first phrase comes to mind, you begin replacing it with the other one. It may look like my mom was dysfunctional but my almighty Father God always has my best interests at heart. He clothes me in the best clothes and gives me family treasures. Or my spiritual parent abandoned me, left me. 
But God, my almighty father, he's waiting for me. He's ready to run towards me as soon as he sees me come near. He's ready to collapse on me and give me the biggest bear hug. See, it's my prayer today is that we confront the lies and the sins that have manifested themselves in our earthly relationships, that our relationship with the almighty Father God will truly be restored. Yahweh Elohim, the God who is both personal, who is Father, who is mighty, and who is powerful. Let's pray. Jesus, we breathe you in and we breathe you out. Lord, this is probably one of the hardest things to do in faith and in life. To think about the hurtful spaces, places and the people that we've been around. those who have attacked or maimed the very image of God that's found in us. Whether through direct action or passivity. So Jesus, as we work to just draw a little closer to you today, I pray that you would just help us Help us to untangle these earthly relationships that have clouded our view of ourselves and of our Father, God, the Almighty. Your kingdom is backwards, Lord. It flows in reverse. What you call a treasure, the world calls a curse. Your kingdom is backward, Jesus. Teach us to serve. Lord, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.